are listening to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, reporting on health from Maine. We're lucky us, we just had our first real snowstorm of the season. Those of you who follow my Catching Health blog may have read some of the stories I've told over the years about my mom, who passed away in September of 2016. She had Alzheimer's disease, and some of what I learned along the way I shared on the blog. If you're caring for someone with dementia, read my post, 20 Things to Know If You Love Someone with Dementia. These are things I learned the hard way. Go to catchinghealth.com and search dementia. Did you know that in the United States alone, five and a half million people have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, which is the leading cause of dementia? To be honest with you, because of my mom, I worry about getting Alzheimer's. Every time I forget something or make a mistake, I have this surge of anxiety. And there is so much information out there about causes, prevention, treatment, new information almost every week. I think it's really confusing. I recently talked with Peter Baker from the Alzheimer's Association of Maine to see if he could provide some clarity. Here's our interview, Unraveling Dementia. Hello there, and welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and my guest is Peter Baker, and we are going to be talking about dementia, which currently affects something around 5 million people in the United States. Peter is program director at the Alzheimer's Association chapter here in Maine. He holds a master's degree in social work and has been working in dementia care since 2006. As program director for the Alzheimer's Association, Peter oversees care and support services, which means he does a lot of things. Consultations with families, crisis support, care planning, emotional support. He also goes around the state educating people about the disease, facilitating support groups, and training support group leaders. My goodness, Peter, do you ever have any time for yourself? I'm really, really lucky to have some great staff on on our team and some amazing volunteers because we've got a big state, um, but there's a lot to do and, and there's going to be a lot more to do as that 5 million increases to more people impacted by this. Although I have to say, I was reading a New York Times article recently about there's some study that has shown that some of the numbers have actually gone down, which I thought, wow, that's pretty exciting. It's pretty interesting to see what's happening. Um, one of the things we know is going to happen is is the numbers are going to increase, but the prevalence rate might re- reduce. So we're going to have more people impacted by this disease, but the percentage of people, say, in their 80s, one in three right now will develop dementia. We're seeing that slightly downtick, but not quick as not as quickly as we'd like to see. Well, that that is a glimmer of hope for me because I've told my kids I want to live to be 100. And uh, but I'd like to live to be 100 and still be sharp as a tack. <laughs> and we know that's, you know, with normal aging, and we probably all know a lot of people out there that are in their 90s or 100 and, and still do are, are smart as a tack, are, are very sharp and have good memories, good cognition. Dementia is more common as we age, but, but it's still not normal aging. Well, my fingers are crossed. Anyway, now before we go any further, people often ask me if dementia and Alzheimer's are the same thing. Can you define both of the terms and explain the connection and the differences? 
Oh, definitely. And this is one of the more common questions I get to Diane is what, what's the difference? Because it's, it is confusing. So dementia is not a specific disease. It's a general term for decline in mental abilities severe enough to interfere with daily life. So dementia is kind of an umbrella term, much like cancer is. And then there's many different causes of dementia. The most common for folks over, over 65 is, is 60 to 80 percent of people have Alzheimer's type type dementia. Um, so there's other causes of dementia, such as Lewy body dementia, frontal temporal dementia, and many others, but Alzheimer's is one of the most common. So one can have, have Alzheimer's disease. Um, if one has Alzheimer's disease, one has dementia, but one can have dementia and not have Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Thank you. Um, the other um, two causes that you mentioned um, mm. Are the symptoms or the signs or how it progresses the same as Alzheimer's? They're all a little bit different, and they're, every, every person with any of these diseases is a little bit different, too. But, but there are some differences, like for Lewy body dementia, for example, or dementia with Lewy bodies, um, often there's, there, there's fluctuations in cognitive skills, attention and alertness. There's, there's visual hallucinations and perhaps delusions that show up earlier in the disease than they might show up for someone with Alzheimer's type dementia. So again, symptoms vary from person to person, but some of the, the other diseases present differently in the earlier stages um, and, and, and might vary in, in, in other ways too. And some of them have different treatments, but a lot of the tips around communication and around getting caregivers getting support are very similar. I think I read that with frontal lobe, sometimes the memory loss is not the first sign. It's the personality change. Is that correct? Exactly. Um, so with frontal, frontal lobe disease or frontal temporal dementia, um, what we do see is we, we ch see changes in mood, we see changes in behavior, uh, maybe emotional control, um, which vary, vary from Alzheimer's, where often, for many, it's, it's those memory changes first that we're noticing. And trying to, to, to figure out, okay, is that normal that I'm forgetting that, or do I need to be worried? But we'll get into some of the signs and symptoms in a minute. I wanted to stick with um, this umbrella term dementia. Now, there are some yeah. other causes of dementia that are actually reversible. So one of the good things is, and when we're out there doing doing information about warning signs, which, uh, we'll, we, as you mentioned, we'll talk about in a little bit, one of the things we encourage people to sit to do is if you're noticing cognitive changes that, that are concerning is to, is to see a doctor because things like depression sometimes look like dementia. You know, when people are socially withdrawing, having trouble with memory, there's things like um, I spoke with a woman that had a gastric bypass surgery that, that there was an error in that and her body wasn't getting all the nutrients it needed. And when it was fixed, her cognition returned back to normal or even simple things like a new medication where I spoke with a woman who attended one of our trainings who was driving to the grocery store, a trip she'd made, you know, weekly for decades and she got lost and she thought, oh my gosh, I think I have Alzheimer's disease or I think I have dementia. But rather than sitting on that with a worry and not wanting to explore it further, she went to her doctor and indeed it had been a recent cardiac medication change she had and, and that was, was changed and she was given a new medication and, and she returned back to her normal cognition. And I think I read that uh, infections can sometimes cause... They, cer 
mm-hmm. uh, in, in older people. Urinary tract infections yes. um, are a big one. It's it's uncomfortable for anybody, um, but but when but when one gets older, they can certainly present with some dementia-like symptoms. That is again very treatable. So when people are noticing these these symptoms, it's good to talk with a doctor and to really push and say, "Here's this is a concern. How, how do we how do we figure out what this is?" Okay. Do we know yet what actually causes Alzheimer's? Once upon a time, I, aluminum was a suspect is it still aluminum the, so the aluminum theory is it, aluminum is known to to be toxic to the nervous system but its effects differ from those with alzheimer's disease so most researchers and mainstream healthcare professionals believe based on our current knowledge that consumption of aluminum isn't a significant risk factor because mm-hmm. I, I get those calls sometimes Diane, too, of, you know, are aluminum pans causing this and we really don't think aluminum pans are are the the a factor in people developing Alzheimer's. So what do we think is causing it? <laughs> do we even... so right, there, there's some theories, you know, Alzheimer's disease has no known single cause. Um, but in the last 15 years, scientists have learned a great deal on things that might play a role. And we know that there's whatever triggers there are, um, it begins to damage the brain years before we're seeing symptoms. So one of the, the main um areas that we're looking at are the plaques and tangles we've been talking about for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the amyloid plaques are clumps of protein that accumulate outside of the brain's nerve cells and tangles are twisted strands of another protein that form. And it's believed that these plaques and tangles are playing some sort of role in the development of the, the nerve cell death within the brain and, and then the symptoms that result as that progresses. But we still haven't figured out what's making that happen. We still haven't. We don't know if that's a cause or an effect fully. And and we also have found folks, there was studies done on nuns. Uh, there was a nun study that people might have heard about where there was a lot of individuals with a lot of um, individuals with a significant amount of plaques and tangles, but they didn't present with symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So that's one of the areas that we're looking at closely and, and trying to figure out, is it these plaques and tangles? Is it... Is, is it um, Another theory is around brain inflammation. So we're, we're, we're now that funding is increasing for research, we're starting to explore all sorts of alternative, alternative theories. Okay, and there are now these genetic tests available for the general public, like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, which, among other things, they can tell people if they carry any Alzheimer's genes. Now, I happen to take that test. Mm-hmm. My mom happened to have had Alzheimer's. And all that test did was confuse me mm. because I saw that they put things into categories like uh, these are good genes. These are bad genes. These are we have no idea what they do genes. And so I saw, oh, gosh, I've got some genes that put me at risk. Oh, wait a minute. I've got some genes that protect me. Do they balance each other out? So I, I decided to just forget about what I saw because it made no sense to me. So my question is, are these genetic tests at this point useful? And and I'm glad you decided to just kind of n- not go down that that path to, to worry about it, because that's one of our concerns about some of these genetic tests. So, so there's really two categories of genes that influence whether a person develops um, Alzheimer's disease. There's risk genes and deterministic genes. So research, researchers have identified Alzheimer's genes in both categories. 
the deterministic genes are really a lot more less common. So these are the rare genes that that guarantee that anyone who inherits one will develop a disorder, and and we, we're estimating that this is accounting for less than 5% of all Alzheimer's cases. So a lot more people are looking at the risk genes. And that's what these um, these tests, these mail order tests, and even tests done by in a healthcare setting are looking at. And, and some of the genes people might have heard of, one is the ApoE4, which is a risk gene that we've identified and kind of known about a long time. We're also looking at genes like ApoE2, ApoE3, these are these are things that really a genetic counselor is going to be the best person to provide advice around. Because as you shared, the genes show that you might have elevated risk, but it doesn't show if the disease is going to present itself or when that disease might present itself. So you might have uh, the three of the risk genes, but you know live into your 90s and never present with the disease at all. So we're still not at a place where, in most cases, genetic testing is helpful. And in fact, a lot of people might get those genetic tests and, and differing from you, see that they've got that elevated risk and then the anxiety and, and worry starts to present as symptoms versus any sort of real pathology. Well, I freaked out because I have one co copy of the APO4, I think it is. So I um, being who I am, a writer mm. and a researcher, I was immediately on my computer researching, what does this mean? Uh, I, I found an entire website devoted to the gene. Um, mm. I read all this stuff about what I should be eating, um, what I should be doing for exercise, and um, for 24 hours, I was in that mindset of, I've got to change everything I'm doing. Oh. <laughs> and then, <laughs> And then I went back and looked at the test again, and that's when I took the deep breath and I said, listen, there are so many other factors besides the genes you carry. No. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's when I, yes, I took the deep breath and I said, let go of this and uh, keep trying to live a good life. And, mm. But maybe someday we, there will be early markers uh, screening tests that will help you definitively figure out or at least close to definitive, um, whether or not you are truly at risk. And that's actually brings up a really interesting point um, because we're, we're looking at a lot of, that's one of the areas that science is really focusing on, Diane. We're, we're looking to see how do we look and detect this disease prior to symptoms presenting. So there's been a lot of research and science looking at that area, looking at people with healthy brains mm -hmm. to see, are, is there things that they might be able to do to reduce their risk over, over their lifetime? So maybe they do have some of these genetic factors, but then what do we do with that information? You know, I, some of the science is really pointing towards exercise being a huge factor in our, in our cognitive health as we age, but things like diet, getting an appropriate amount of sleep, um, not smoking, you know, the list goes on and on. But that's where some of the science is really looking at today, too. And it's pretty exciting to see where it's going. And the thing is, all all those things that you mentioned, we should probably be doing anyway, and not just to try to protect ourselves against Alzheimer's, but all kinds of diseases. That's so true. And I think so much of this public health kind of st stuff, the, the exercise, the diet, the social connections, it, it works for overall health as we age and overall health in life. 
So I think I think a lot of doctors are going to say this this is the way for us to go. <laughs> but there's also the environment we live in. You know, there's mm. some things that we can't seem to control. Yeah. And do we have any idea uh, how much of a role environmental factors play? It doesn't come up as often. You know, people sometimes wonder about the aluminum theory like you asked about earlier in the environment that we're in. And I think there's, there's still less known about that. I think things, um, things where the more research that I'm aware of has focused on are those lifestyle factors, those controllable factors. Because we, what we have found is regardless of, of country or nation that the person is living in, there's, when everything's equalized, there's, there's a lot of similarity. And, and the world is facing an Alzheimer's crisis in some ways as, as our population ages. Okay. So let's move on to diagnosing. Mm. So it used to be that you could not get a true diagnosis until after the person had died and you could autopsy the brain. Mm. Is that still the case, or do we now have the technology available to make a diagnosis when the person is still alive? Well, what we do know is a skilled fit physician can diagnose Alzheimer's disease with over 90% accuracy, um, but there's no single test for Alzheimer's. Diagnosis normally involves a ruling out of a lot of other things. It l includes a physical exam, looking at neurological exams, sometimes a mental health um, review, and, and those, minute, those cognitive tests. One of the things that's exciting that's happening now is, is traditionally we've always used an MRI or CT scan to look at the outside of the brain and see, do we see any atrophy or changes that are abnormal, uh, that are not normal, might not be associated with normal aging. But what we're doing in some clinical trials is what's called um, PET imaging, positron emission tomography, where they're actually looking at the activity of the brain. Mm -hmm. And that's giving us a lot more data. And in fact, I've talked with a number of people who have participated in the IDEAS study, which is one of the clinical trials looking at PET imaging. And they were believed to have Alzheimer's type dementia, but then upon PET imaging, it was determined to have a different cause. So that's where I see probably a lot of um, a lot of future progress being made is is in our brain imaging but there's other science looking at some of those early screenings things looking at the at blood things looking at um, smell thinking things looking at the eyes and none of these are available via um, going to a doctor now but some of them are being reviewed in clinical trials to see how that helps inform how we diagnose and treat better Tell me about smell. Mm. So um, smell is, it, it's still early, but we have a, a conference that happens every year that we bring people from around the world to share what they're learning uh, around Alzheimer's research. It's called the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. So in, back in 2014, I know they were looking at some smell tests as a possible um, tool for diagnosis. And uh, let me see if I can identify the specifics. I know it's, it's it's still something in trial, but they were noticing that some people with dementia seem to have changes in their smell, mm. um, uh, their their sense of smell. You and know, it's interesting because I swear every single day you can find some article that tells you about some study that was done, and yeah. talk about being confusing. 
you know, because one day you read, do this, and the next day it's do that, and um, it's hard to tell what to believe and what to just view as, well, looks like this is in the early stage and doesn't really mean anything. And I think that's one of the things that uh, that consumers and, and people need to be really savvy about is where this is such a scary disease. There's there's a lot of things be, and there's there's a lot of studies going on, but most of them are in the earlier phases. So they're not quite ready for everybody. When people have questions, I would definitely encourage them because I get news briefs and, and information from our science team on a regular basis. And they can call our helpline, which is available 24-7 to say, hey, I just saw this article. Does, does this, is this legitimate? Is this something that I um, should take seriously? Or, or is this something that, that maybe is more kind of a pop, pop culture um, piece? Or if, I, if I write something <laughs> about a study like that, I always make sure to say, this is promising. This is in the earliest stages mm-hmm. It's not a done deal. Um, Can you give the hotline number here? We'll give it again later too. But why don't you give it here since you've mentioned it? Oh, perfect. Yes, we have a twenty. So we have clinicians like myself available around the clock at one eight hundred two seven two thirty nine hundred, and that's just a place that people can go. You get a real live person, and then if, if you're concerned about your own memory, that's a place to go. If you're concerned about a loved one and how do I have this conversation, that's a place to go. And you can get re- some really talented clinicians that can help answer all sorts of questions or and provide tips. This isn't just for Maine. This is across the it, country. Yeah, wherever people are. I, I sometimes say in February, I love to be in our Aloha chapter, um, <laughs> but wherever, that's in Hawaii, um, where, wherever people are, they can get that support. And then they can get local follow-up too from, from folks in whatever state that person might be in. Okay. So some people will get dementia when they're really young, mm. called early onset. Like what? what's the age cutoff? So one of the things people can get is they can develop what's called younger onset. Um, so younger onset refers to people under 65 that are developing symptoms, um, with late onset often being those older than 65. So I've, I've worked with folks as young as their thirties with living with dementia. And as you can imagine, when people are developing younger onset dementia, it comes with some unique challenges, um, just because people might have children still at home and there, there's, there's additional things that those caregivers are nav- navigating. So people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and early 60s might develop younger onset Alzheimer's. And that accounts for about 10% of all Alzheimer's cases. Are they the same? Do they manifest themselves the same way? The disease often manifests itself similarly. Um, it And everybody's progression varies. One of the things that can be unique is some of the financial challenges, some of the, um, you know, resource challenges. People are often still working, but the disease presentation is often similar, similar. Okay. Now, by the time you reach 80, I Mm. guess you've got something like a 50-50 chance of developing Alzheimer's, which is kind of scary. Is that an accurate figure? It's a little bit less, fortunately. So one in three in their 80s will will develop dementia, and, and as you referenced earlier, that's 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 decreasing a little bit, but it's still not where we want it. So, 
so I wonder now I have reached 65 but I haven't reached 80 do I have a little reprieve <laughs> <laughs> one of the best things we can do Diane is is make sure we're 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 taking care of ourselves that we're taking care of our bodies and taking care of our minds doing keeping those social connections, challenging our brain in new and different ways. The, the science is really exciting. And there's actually a study coming out in 2018. This is another one of the clinical trials that I'm really excited about. It's called the Pointer Study. And the Pointer stu Study is trying to replicate some of the work that was done by the, I'm going to give you all these study names, the Finger Study, which happened a few years back. And the Pointer Study is going to be a large scale clinical trial where there's a group of people who are going to have lifestyle factors modified, exercise, diet, social connections, um, and, and, and learning new things. And then folks that will probably do similar things to what they've always done. And we're going to see what are the differences in their cognitive health as they age. So that's one of the things I'm excited about doing because I know preliminary research is really pointing towards those things all being really beneficial. To participate in this trial, do you have to be a younger person? Or are they going to follow you for a long time? Mm, really great question. I am not sure about the, all the specifics, um, and I don't have my notes on it right here. Um, but I can get you that information, Diane. Yeah, uh, I'd be curious about that um, for myself. When you do studies like this, though, you can't decide what category you're going to be in, can you? <laughs> With, with any sort of clinical trial, that is one of the, the challenges is, is there, there's always a chance that you're going to be in the placebo group if, if the test is designed that way. And, and many tests are designed that way where there's a placebo group and then there's the test group. Um, so one of the ways people can find, about, find out about trials is, is we help people find that too. We have a website called Trial Match and people can go to alz.org backslash trial match and ask specific questions about your current health uh, and about specifics of, of, of your, where you're at in, in life. And, and then you can kind of see what trials you might be eligible for. So they're looking for healthy volunteers. And some of them are drug trials. But a big piece of how we advance the knowledge is just even surveys and, and other less, less intrusive kind of trial participation. Yeah, I might be interested in that. Let's talk about drugs, drug trials. Mm -hmm. There are some treatments that are currently available, but do they actually make a difference? Well, one of the things, we, we do have a handful of medications that are available for people, people living with Alzheimer's and other dementias. And, and these are ones you've probably heard, heard about because they've been around for quite some time. The, the ones that most frequently we hear about is Dinepazil, um, which used to be called Aricept. Uh, now it's a generic. And Nemenda is another one. And Exelon. So often people might take Aricept and Nemenda together or Exelon and Nemenda. And these drugs don't stop or slow the disease. What they do is for some people, they help the person's cognition operate better. Um, and some people experience side effects that, that don't really kind of, that are outweigh the possible benefits. Hmm. So they kind of mask the symptoms, but they don't get to the root of the problem? Yeah, they kind of make the brain operate more efficiently for a period of time, but they don't stop the disease from progressing. 
progressing. But for some people, that makes a huge difference in, in that, you know, it may be, maybe it helps with memory, maybe it helps with functioning and, and can make a big difference for some people. So it, would, it could slow things down sometimes? It doesn't necessarily slow because the disease is continuing to to progress, um, but it might help the person continue to operate a higher level. With some of the specifics around that, I kind of I feel like a, a doctor can can speak to it better. But what I can tell you is that the dr- drugs that we have available just they've been around for a while, and for many they can be super helpful. For some, the side effects aren't worth it, and and. For those that it works, it, 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 can, it can really play a big piece. And, and I've heard many people share that it made a huge difference in helping them be independent longer. That uh, drug that you mentioned, Aricept, which mm. is now a generic, uh, was offered to my mother. However, when we looked at it, the side effects, that wouldn't have been good for her. Mm. So it was a very difficult decision to make. But, um, you know, we weighed the, the pros and cons of it. But can you explain what some of the side effects are? Yeah. Uh, the ones that I hear most frequently, and I'm sure like any drug, there's, there's a longer list. But the ones I hear frequently are more of those gastrointestinal symptoms, um, you know, people being uncomfortable that way, um, nausea. And uh, even sometimes vivid, vivid dreams. And, and sometimes people, I've, I've heard pharmacists share that you can change when that medication is prescribed for that last symptom. But people are always weighing it. Is it are, if they're experiencing these side effects, is the potential benefit worth it, given that it's not a disease-modifying drug? It's just a symptom-modifying drug. Right. And she already had a whole bunch of GI issues to deal with. Mm. So anyway... Let's talk about the signs and the symptoms that we should be aware of. You know, like having your glasses on the top of your head as you look all around the house for them is not necessarily something to worry about. It's definitely not. And and the other one I often bring up is running into someone at the grocery store and not remembering their name is pretty normal part of life, too. So um, we do a program called Know the Ten Signs. It talks about early detection and just what to do when you're experiencing things that you think might be dementia. And I'll read you off the ten signs because I think it's helpful to know. But then we're going to I want to talk a little bit more about them, because as I read off these signs, you might say that this is I'm experiencing this sometimes. So the 10 warning signs that we have is memory loss that disrupts daily life, challenges in planning or solving problems, difficulty completing familiar tasks, confusion with time or place, trouble understanding visual and spatial relationships, new problems with words and speaking or writing, misplacing things and losing the ability to retrace steps, decreased or poor judgment, withdrawal from work or social activities, and changes in mood and personality. So one of the things we often say is symptoms vary from person to person. And and this disease course varies from person to person too. So some of these things happen because of because of life and the busy lives we live or could have an alternate cause such as a medication um, or depression. But when these things are really starting to bother someone and impact their daily functioning, 
keeping a list of examples and bringing that to one's doctor, I think, is a really important step to say, hey, you know what? I'm having memory loss that's disrupting my daily life. And that's not forgetting someone's name on occasion, um, but, but forgetting some pretty important things. Or that's not going into the grocery store and coming out and having trouble finding my car, um, but then finding it. That's me coming out and, and not being able to retrace my steps to find my car um, and how scary that is. So I think, I think these symptoms can happen to a certain level as a normal part of life, but when they're really becoming disruptive, it's time to talk to a doctor. So first step, talk to your doctor. And mm. uh, we ended up taking my mom to, uh, for a geriatric assessment in which they did a lot of cognitive testing uh, she met with a social worker. So did we. I mean, it was a couple of hours long. And then we came back to learn about the evaluation. Excellent. And that's kind of a normal process too, Diane. Sometimes people are able to go to their primary care who can do a lot of this work. But if someone's in the earlier stages or even in the earlier middle stages, there are that, that, that primary care is often going to refer out to a specialist, be it a memory clinic or, or a neurologist to do that more intensive study. Because for something like this, we really want to make sure we've ruled out all other possible causes. And then after that, that we've gotten both the person living with the disease and their family aware of all the supports that are available to help. Oh, and you do need support. There are so many people I know of who try to do it on their own and you know, when I, at the beginning of our interview, I mentioned, my goodness, how do you find time for yourself with all that you're doing? And that is the case for a lot of people who are caregivers. Sorry, my phone's ringing. <laughs> um, that is totally true. So, so caregivers need support and it can be overwhelming. And, and building a team, one of the benefits of early detection is starting to build a team of professionals and build, bringing family close to one another just to make sure that all the resources needed are there and, and to start talking about it and start planning. One of the ways that the Alzheimer's Association helped my family is this was before you were there. There's another gentleman who was um, a social worker and program director. We were having some communication issues amongst some of us family members. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we all went to your office and sat down and the other gentleman facilitated a conversation so that we could talk about what was bothering us in a kind of a safe environment without, you know, pulling each other's hair out. And um, we came back and he also facilitated a conference call with, um, I come from a large family, so we had a conference call with siblings from around the country. And uh, so we were able to all discuss things in a safe way, respectful way, and also to ask some questions. That was a huge help. So I'm so, gl I'm so glad you reached out to us because that's what we want to do. We want to help families navigate this disease because we know it's emotional, it's complex, and, and people are coming at it from all sorts of different perspectives. So if, if we can offer support, and, and we, we do that, the service you referenced, we call it care consultation, and we can do it in person here in our Scarborough office, 
or we can do it over the phone wherever someone might live to to just say you know what are your questions have you thought about this what are where are people at and and really bringing people together because because as this disease progresses it's really helpful when families are able to work together um and and be on a similar page and really have the knowledge that they need to provide the best care and support for that person living with the disease possible the biggest question of all is help i don't know what i'm doing what should i do and and there's no specific answer to that but there can be a lot of a lot of guidance a lot of tips and 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 that asking for help is huge we want people to reach out and ask for help because cuz going at this alone um, you know so often that primary caregiver gets sick themselves and takes ill and, and the person with the disease really needs needs that person so when we can we can point people in all the directions of things that might help whether it's an agency on aging whether it's a home care agency whether it's an adult day service elder law attorneys we want to people want people to know all the things out there that are going to hopefully make a difference and make this journey a little bit easier you know sadly i've met several people family members who um, one of their parents passed away Mm. and then they discovered that the other parent had some major issues. And what had happened is the parent who passed away had been caregiving and had in a way taken over things and kept, kept it hidden from other family members. Does that make sense? It's not uncommon. I think I think sometimes people people are, are embarrassed about some of the symptoms or don't have an understanding and don't know how to talk about it or or are worried that, you know, there's so many fears of are we going to lose our independence? But one of the things we know is talking about this really makes a big difference. It makes a di- difference because it, it helps to reduce some of the stigma we have about about dementia, too. And I, I see the tide changing to a certain extent where people are talking about this more. It's being talked about more in the media. And one of the neat things I get to see is is I work with a lot of people living with the disease. And they're, many of them are open about talking about it with friends and family that, you know, if, 10 years back, that might not have been as easy or as comfortable. So I think talking about it makes a big difference, but people still can either be in denial or, or just not know what to do. So don't know how to, how to have these conversations. And the Alzheimer's Association can help with that too. Or feel like I can take care of this. I don't need anybody to help me. Um, I, I want to make clear that although we are here in Maine, these services that you're talking about are available at, through any chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Oh, for sure. We have we we have resources in every state and and that 24/7 helpline and our website really are places for people to reach out to because there's such a wealth of information that can really answer a lot of questions and help direct people to resources in their own community. So let's talk about something that the Alzheimer's Association needs help with. There's all kinds of research going on, Mm -hmm. lots of promising research. Research costs money, but we're not asking for money because fortunately there have been some huge increases in funding, including that $100 million that Bill Gates says he plans to invest in Alzheimer's research. But I understand that you need people who are willing to participate in some of these clinical trials. Is that right? 
Oh, that's so right. It's so exciting. You know, all all, all the increased funding coming both with the federal government as well as other donors like Bill Gates. That was a really cool um, piece of news to come into the other day. Um, and I know he spoke with our science team um, as he, he was exploring that major gift um, or major donation into Alzheimer's research. But we need we need people to participate. And I think one of the things sometimes people worry about is not wanting to take any sort of experimental drugs, especially if they're not presenting with symptoms. But there are so many ways people can participate in the research that doesn't involve drugs. And we, we work a lot with um, clinicaltrials.gov, and we make it a little bit easier to find trials that people could participate in. And that's at that website service that we call Trial Match. Um, so people can access Trial Match from a couple different ways. They can access it um, from our from our helpline. So they can contact 1-800-272-3900 and get information about Trial Match. They can visit our website, alz.org backslash Trial Match, or they can email our Trial Match team at trialmatch at alz.org. In any of those ways, people can find out some trials that they might be able to participate and help move move this our progress and research forward. Okay, and I'll put a direct link on my blog to that. Oh, awesome. And to the Alzheimer's Association, which is alz.org, where there is a mm -hmm. ton of information. And just by going to alz.org or calling the helpline, that's the best way to just get information in general? That's the best way to start um, because they can really cover whatever the major questions are and also you know, provide some, some tips and tactics and strategies. And we can mail things to people too so that they can have brochures or materials afterwards to refer back to. Well, we've covered a lot here. Did I forget anything? Oh, I'm trying to think. I think we, we could go on for a long time, yes, Diane, about yes. Alzheimer's and all the resources, but I think we covered some really important things. Well, I've got a personal question for you. So you're, yeah. a, you're a social worker. Why did you decide to go into the dementia field? Oh, good question. So I finished, when I finished my MSW, I really realized I wanted to work with older adults. And I started working in, in a long-term care center here in, in Portland and really just fell in love with the work. I fell in love with helping families and, and making a difference by providing, answering questions about the disease, giving them strategies on, on connecting and, and, and caring and communicating with their loved one, as well as the people living with the disease and just finding how, how I could make a difference in their lives by learning as much as I could about them and, and sharing that information with, with the people that were providing that direct care. And, and just saw time and time again, those aha moments from both the professional caregivers as well as the family caregivers where they were like, oh my gosh, this is making things so much easier. I, I found a way to reduce the distress in my loved one. Hmm. So I, I, wor I worked in a variety of long-term care centers as a social worker, as a dementia educator, and had always kind of worked with that, or had often worked with the Alzheimer's Association as a volunteer first on their walk to end Alzheimer's committees where we, we planned our huge walks and the greater Portland walk was the one I was participating in to our conference planning committee where, where I um, helped the staff member at the time, you know, plan some great education conferences. And then lucky for me, a position opened up with the Alzheimer's association and I got to join the team and, and, and help make an impact for all Mainers. Well, so you must've had expectations when you started the job 
<laughs> have things turned out the way you thought they would? I, I think I knew what I was getting into and, and I couldn't be happier. I really, I love what I do. I, I feel like I get a, to make a difference in people's lives every day and, 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 and help, like I shared earlier, help our volunteers know about tools and resources to, to help people directly in communities throughout Maine. So I really, I, I couldn't feel, I, I, I couldn't be luckier. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you for what you do, and thank you for spending the time with us today, giving us so much valuable information about dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Hopefully we've provided some clarity for some people. And if anybody has any questions that we didn't answer, you can just send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com, and I will make sure to get them to you, Peter, and uh, we'll get the answers because, like you said, there's so much more that we could talk about. Thank you so much for, for having me on today, Diane. It was, it was nice to speak with you and, and, and cover so much valuable information. All right. Well, I have been talking to Peter Baker, and he is the program director at the Maine chapter, and that's the state of Maine, M-A-I-N-E, chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And I will be right back with more news from Catching Health. Do you know about the connection between your diet and your longevity? That if you restrict what you eat, you may add a few more healthy years to your life? You can read about some of the research on the Catching Health blog at catchinghealth.com. Here are some other recent posts. Exercising when you're sick. Is it okay? How about a recipe for a Persian barley salad? I've got lots of recipes, along with fitness tips, well-researched blog posts, and interesting podcast interviews on the Catching Health blog. My goal is to expose people to useful information about being well and living fully. You can catch it all at catchinghealth.com. And please be sure to subscribe when you're there. I'm Diane Atwood. I hope you have a great day.